0: Welcome to Obsessed with Design, a show about what makes designers tick. My name's Josh Miles. I'm a designer, principal, and brand strategist at Miles Herndon, a branding agency in beautiful downtown Indianapolis. I hope you guys are ready for this because today on Obsessed with Design, I chat with James White from Signal Noise Studios. I hope you have your neon colors and laser beams ready because we are going to get into some 1980s pop culture geekiness and you guys are going to love it. James and I talk about his origins, his importance of drawing, his setup, his process, and how he finds some of his best clients. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with James White okay guys today i am proud to introduce all the way from dartmouth nova scotia artist designer speaker and founder of signal noise studio james white james welcome to obsessed with design
1: thank you very much josh it's a pleasure to be here with you
0: (laughs) oh man it's awesome to have you on here and for those of you who may be unfamiliar with james first of all what is up with that and second of all James, like myself, is a huge fan of the pop culture of the 1980s. We can definitely see that in his work. And uh, James and I met and chatted a little bit at Creative South a few years back in Columbus, Georgia.
1: Yeah, that was a good time, man. Mike and all the dudes down there, a big shout out. Big shout out to those guys.
0: Exactly. It's a great and growing show. And uh, just coincidentally, one of our listeners gave you a shout out on Twitter a few weeks back and you were very speedy to respond. So thanks (laughs) for taking some time to catch up and be on the show today.
1: Oh man. My pleasure. Yeah. I like doing this stuff and, uh, it feels, uh, I've been kind of taking a break from, uh, from the speaking gigs. So it's, uh, it's good to to talk to somebody that's, uh, you know, from afar.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, I think you've, you're probably like a, uh, like a walk, a car ride, a train and three flights from most places. (laughs)
1: Oh yeah, that's right. Uh we the the joke in uh, in Nova Scotia is that you can you can get a direct flight from Halifax to nowhere. So uh <laughs> yeah, you we got to do a lot of traveling to get <laughs> to get anywhere, really, yeah.
0: <laughs> so coincidentally when my dad was uh dad served in the US Navy, he was um in Newfoundland for a little while and their right joke on. was always, you know, you can't get there from here.
1: Yeah, yeah. Newfoundland, uh, it was funny. um, Louis C.K. was uh, traveling and and doing some comedy, uh, like maybe six or seven years ago or something like that. And he stopped in Halifax. And uh, he said, and much like Newfoundland, he said, man, you got to you got to be coming specifically to this part of the world because Halifax and Newfoundland are on the way to nowhere you know (laughs) you you don't just drop into Halifax on the way to Greenland (laughs) so that's the part of where the world we're at yeah it's
0: like you drive to Maine and then you get really lost from there I think oh yeah to get there
1: and Maine is funny too, because uh, Canadians love traveling to Maine because it just feels like Canada is just kind of bleeding down into uh, into the United <laughs> States, kind of through Maine. So they got a lot of lobster fishermen, and they wear raincoats a lot. And it's like, yeah, that's that's our people. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think when my dad was up your way, I think he had a little run in with the uh, the Royal Mounted Police and got thrown <laughs> off because the guy wasn't on a horse. So he. <laughs> identified himself as a Mountie and he was like, Oh yeah, where's your horse? So that, that actually got him into a little bit of trouble while he was in the Navy. Yeah. See, that's the thing. Like
1: a lot of people think like the stereotypical, uh, Canadian policeman is the guy with the big brimmed Brown cap and the red uniform riding a moose, you know, it's with the, uh, <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we don't actually have those. Yeah. And I, and yeah, apparently yeah, police officers don't take too kindly. <laughs> to-
0: you know, maybe this is a good, um, future project for you, but I could totally, see a signal noise styled out mounty on a moose, like with all the neon colors. I think that would be pretty killer.
1: Oh yeah. There we go. Yeah. I think, I think you're onto something there, man. I was tra- I tried to make a joke. Actually, I think I might've been, I can't remember where I was. I was on the road uh, at another conference or whatever. It might've been like uh, South Carolina or something like that. And I was, I was sitting around uh, the dinner with a bunch of the speakers and uh, typically I'm the only Canadian at these things if it's in the United States. So I started, um, making up these dumb little stories to try to fool the people at the table. And one of them was that uh, back in the 1800s that we didn't actually have horses in Canada. They had to be imported from like South America or (laughs) something. And I said, so Mounties actually did ride moose uh, for the longest time before we ended up getting horses into into the country and uh, and they could ride horses. And you know trying to deliver that with a completely straight face and everybody at the table is just looking at me and nobody knew how to react like i'm <laughs> pretty sure you can't ride a moose <laughs> but we can't tell if that's true because canada might be weird
0: <laughs> maybe maybe they know how to do it up there i mean who knows yeah
1: who knows i don't
0: know <laughs> so one of the things that i remember discovering when we were at creative south was that you and i are actually like just a couple months apart. So outside of the fact that, you know, you grew up in Canada and I grew up in the South Bend area by Notre Dame, I was thinking we might've been, uh, separated at birth with all of the, uh, <laughs> pop culture, uh, attractions and He-Man and, and all of the, the toys and whatnot.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was the best time to be a kid. Wasn't it? Like we, uh, we had, a, it was. yeah, we had all the best stuff. Like it was great. And, um, you know, and the, the, the great thing about living or being a kid in the eighties was, uh, it didn't seem like there was that much restriction on toy companies and animation companies and movie companies and things. And they just seemed to throw everything at the wall to see what would stick. And it didn't right. have to be related to, yeah, like a franchise or anything like mad balls. Like what, what the hell? And, uh, you know, just like, yeah, let's, let's just do this and see if this, see if this works. And then sometimes they'll release like a crappy cartoon and then have awesome toys for it, like sectors and, um, and some other right. stuff. But uh, yeah, and it's, it was such a great time because they were just trying to figure out what kids were into and, and sometimes you'd have lightning in a bottle like He-Man and sometimes you'd have giant flops like Centurions, you know, and it was, uh, right. I'm really showing my, uh, my, my nerd here, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, and it was just such a great time because everything like nowadays seems to directly hinge on a movie or, uh, or something and it needs right. to be very calculated, you know?
0: And then there were always like the, um, the antithesis of, you know, if one thing was successful, they'd always create like, you know, you had cabbage patch kids and then garbage <laughs> pail kids. It's kind of the, you know, the bizarro version of that. And there were, there were so many things like that.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I was looking up online a couple of days ago and trying and I found, I can't remember what it was called, but it was like a ripoff of He-Man, like obviously a ripoff mm. of He-Man and it was called something like, uh, uh, I don't know the, the, Joint Chiefs of the Galaxy or something—I couldn't remember what it was called, but uh yeah—and it was just a complete and utter like you know dollar store version of what He-Man was. Just I love that stuff.
0: <laughs> oh, that's awesome! Yeah. Uh, so the other thing is, you've got a big birthday coming up. I know this because I just went through this <laughs> myself, <laughs> and I'll, I'll just let you know that it, I made it through okay. So if you're having any second thoughts, I think it'll—oh, it'll good. Fine. You
1: may- you made it through your 23rd birthday too. That's, That's right. right. I'm 23 well again. Well done, Josh. Yeah, yeah. The big, yeah, 40, man. Yeah. I can't believe that. Yeah.
0: R- in the world at 40. Yeah, it's a little bit of a freak out moment, but uh but so far so good.
1: Yeah, it was I'm pretty okay with it. I think I've always I've always been okay with, you know, age and stuff. I've had plenty of conversations as everybody does about, you know, when somebody's getting old, and then you know, or they reach a certain age, and they're starting like, oh no, I can't, blah blah blah. And I've never sort of been like that. I don't know. I think I think it's the stuff like just sticking so close to the stuff from my childhood. I kind of don't care, or it doesn't feel like uh, there's any distance between yeah. me and and that that part of my life really. Maybe because I just didn't grow up. And that might have something to do with it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm okay with it. I think 40 is good. I mean, it looks good when you the kerning between four and zero looks okay. So. <laughs> No, I'm okay.
0: (laughs) Excellent. Easier to Kern than say 41. Oh
1: yeah. That's going to be a nightmare.
0: (laughs) Well, I want to dig into what you're up to right now. And I'm sure a a lot of your fans are familiar with this, but maybe you could tell us a little bit of kind of how you got started in the world of design and, and what's your origin story.
1: Oh, origin story. What great phrasing, Josh. Um, yeah, that's, a, that's kind of a sprawling one. i I kind of have different segments of my career and how it sort of evolved. I mean, like, like a lot of artists and designers, I know I, I was drawing when I was like a little kid, four or five years old, never stopped doing that all the way through junior high and high school. Um, it was just, you know, the pencils, colored pencils and markers, just drawing my favorite characters or whatever, and comic books and things. And, um, When I got into grade 12, I had a meeting with the guidance counselor and uh, I originally wanted to be a police officer. I originally wanted to be a Mountie. How about that? Um, (laughs)
0: See, full circle.
1: It's crazy, huh? Yeah. But uh, it turns out that my marks weren't good enough to be uh, to be a police officer. And he asked me, you know, what are you interested in? And up until that point, I'd never considered art or drawing to be like a career or something I could do, because it's not that I took it for granted, it was just something I did on my own time, it was for fun, you know? And I never thought like I could do something fun for a living, that never occurred to me until that point. So he asked me what I was interested in, I said drawing, and he said, have you ever thought about graphic design? And I said, what's that? And uh, he had a pamphlet in his desk for the local community college, and luckily they taught graphic design in my small, small hometown of Truro, Nova Scotia. Incidentally, it was the final year that they were going to be teaching this graphic design course. So that was uh, that was pretty lucky. Mm. Uh, so I enrolled in that and got into it, got base level um, graphic design skills, introduced to the computer and Photoshop. Um, I've never heard of Photoshop up until that point. This was 95. And um, yeah, after that, I took two years of interactive technology, which basically taught me how to web- make a website. And CD-ROMs, which came in really handy. And, and, yeah, and after that, I was scooped up into the web industry. And that's pretty much where my career started. For 10 years, I was a website designer, um, designing stuff, you know, simple-ass, you know, uh, table-based websites, TRTDs, like the uh, late 90s and early 2000s. Um, And I... I got pretty good at uh, experimenting with flash as well. So I did some flash animation and stuff, but all during, you know, and th- these were, not some of the projects were cool, but it, ultimately it wasn't that interesting in a small local market of Halifax. It was, you know, a uh, spa websites for spas and, um, you know local car dealerships and that kind of thing so it wasn't wasn't that interesting but on my own time i was always still drawing my favorite characters and working on like flash animation and working on little comic books and comic strips and i'd always have a project on the go on my own time evenings and weekends really um so while i was doing this i was trying to figure out what you know my own little corner of the internet was going to be because at the time I was really into uh, the work of Joshua Davis. Uh, he was my hero mm-hmm. back in the day, and then it turns out he's one of my friends now from just doing speaking. But he was my hero back in the day, and I loved PreyStation.com and all these these guys in the uh, the late 90s and early 2000s that were doing stuff like 3O and um, G Monk was posting a lot of stuff, and you know they all had these online monikers, and I saw them as like you know their graffiti tag names or something, <laughs> and I wanted my own little uh, corner of the internet just so I can upload all the little projects I was doing and drawings and that kind of thing. And I came up with uh, the name signal noise in 1999 and which was a long ass time ago. And it was, uh, you know, this was way before I ever thought about it being my brand or my studio. I just wanted a website that I kind of, that kind of sounded cool and, um, that I could just upload my stuff to. So I did that. And uh, just to fast forward a bit, coming into like maybe uh, 2007 2008, I uh, I redid Signal Noise after being online for about 10 years into a WordPress uh, blog. And the only way to justify having a blog was to keep the content fresh. And the only way to keep the content fresh was to make stuff, make art, and that was like kind of a silent motivator for me to keep uploading stuff online, keeping it fresh, talking about how I made it and stuff. And I started seeing. I mean the first month I had my website online I got uh maybe 80, 80 page views <laughs> and you know <laughs> seventy seventy five 75 of them were my mom you know so it was like a, a really as everybody like it's a very slow start it's just it's you, you, it's uh um you just have to keep on top of the work that you're doing and keep it fresh and keep talking about it and eventually I built a little bit of an audience and then um my buddy Fabio Sasso uh, that runs abdazito.com. he did an interview with me. And incidentally, it was his second interview that he ever did for Abdazito back in 2008. And that got up uploaded to his website. He posted a bunch of my work, uh, the big interview. And uh, a week later, Toyota called um, through Saatchi and Saatchi in LA. And that was my first um, big kind of client job that I landed on my own that was outside of the agency that I worked with in my small hometown. And nice. Yeah. And that and that's sort of how everything kind of uh, started for signal noise. Um, and that, it was right around that time that I worked on the Toyota stuff. That's when I really got into the 1980s style and kind of rehashing things that I enjoyed when I was a little kid. Because up until that point, yeah, I'd been designing cartoon characters and whatever else, but none of it really – grabbed on to um, the the styles and cues of the 80s that really kind of made made us who we are right growing up in that generation um, so that and that's sort of how everything kind of picked up steam for signal noise I kind of found uh, I found my voice through the stuff I was into when I was a kid and and um, I could work on it it was always fun um, you know and it's easy to be enthusiastic about stuff when you love it And, uh, and that kind of propelled me to work with other clients and, uh, and to get on the stage and speaking and stuff. So, you know, that's a long winded answer, but that's, uh, that's basically my, uh, my story.
0: (laughs) Nice. I love that. You know, the story starts with you drawing stuff and at least from, from what, uh, we on the internet can see from a distance, it seems like that hand drawn work is still kind of an important part or first step in your process today.
1: It absolutely is. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know what, it's kind of weird, Josh. Like I, I, when I, of course, when I go around, I'm going to design conferences and stuff, um, and, and working in the agency and, and working alongside other designers, how often I, I've come across people that have, that don't draw or never Mm -hmm. did. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing because design, you can learn the rules you can learn the guidelines, and you can learn, you know, composition and color theory and all that stuff to do graphic design. So I'm not slagging anyone who can't, who can't or doesn't draw here. I just want to make that clear. But it, it surprised me because I could never imagine doing graphic design or or illustration or, or computer, you know, digital art without yeah. having that skill of drawing. You know?
0: Yeah, I, I remember one of the first uh, designers I met in college who was who's telling me, Oh, yeah, I I can't draw anything and I, I was thinking, How are you gonna swing this? How are you <laughs> you're majoring in design? But, you know, like you said, I think I think there are a plenty of designers who actually do a really great job and, you know, they can't draw a bit, but it's it is a little bit mind boggling. Or maybe maybe the opposite true is true. Maybe it's just that I think it helps activate your ability to visualize what you're going to do in the computer if you can get it on paper first.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's just it. I mean, that that I mean, my process always starts with the sketchbook. So, you know, and I know everybody, every single designer out there has to find their own uh, process because every process is uh, is different when you go from designer to designer. But Mm -hmm. for me, it seems like such a foreign idea to. You have, not, you have something in your head that you want to get down and you jump right into Photoshop or Illustrator. I, I, to me, when I sit down at the computer, I need to have kind of a rough roadmap in order to figure out what I'm going to do because you can go anywhere in the realm of Photoshop and Illustrator. And I, I feel like I need to kind of box myself in mm-hmm. and get something down on, on the sketchbook. So if I have four or five rough ideas, that will make it a lot easier when I get on, get into Photoshop to put these things together. So I can't. That one, that one step is so crucial for me that that's why my, I just can't compute (laughs) how, how somebody can jump onto, jump into the computer and come up with something. You know, that seems like magic to me.
0: Well, maybe if you're open to geeking out with us a little bit or letting us geek out through you, tell us a little bit about what the other steps look like. So it starts with a sketch, but tell us more about kind of your process and your, your setup and your workflow on a particular project.
1: Oh, yeah. Cool. Um, And this this is an interesting one because it took me, despite signal noise kind of picking up steam between 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011, I sort of never had a real process that I would do uh, time after time. I kind of fumbled around in in Illustrator and Photoshop until things sort of came together. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of luck and a lot of trial and error. But it wasn't until the last few years that I actually locked in a, a, a process. That, uh, so I'm glad you asked me that because it's really fun to talk about. Um, essentially, like uh, like I just said, I start in the sketchbook always. And if I have an idea, let's say I'm designing a, a horror movie poster or something like that or illustration, whatever it is. I'll start in the sketchbook and I typically try to get away from the computer when I have my sketchbook. So I like going to like coffee shops or a bar or something like that and just something away from, away from the computer just so I'm not – distracted by Twitter and Instagram and all that stuff. So I'll draw a bunch of thumbnails. Um, sometimes I'll just make a list of the elements that I want to include in it, like a skull and fire or whatever it is. And I'll start kind of messing around with those elements just in rough thumbnail form. So I'll move the skull over to the left, the right, I'll center it. Maybe I'll lean it back with the mouth open, whatever it is. I'll put a hood on it and just see what looks, what looks cool in the, uh, in the thumbnails and, Sometimes I'll take the thumbnails an extra step and I'll add some like uh, gray tones and and do some inked like kind of black shading and that kind of thing. Just so I can see how the composition might look and where the, the highlights might fall. And if I can add more dramatic lighting and Photoshop later, stuff like that. So after I have a sketch and I think I have something that will work, I'll go into Illustrator and I'll do sort of a, uh, a vector mock up, which is really, really loose shapes based on the thumbnail that I did, just so I can start grabbing a hold of elements and sliding them around. And I I can even mess with color in there because just slapping a gradient on the skull or or putting Mm -hmm. red in the eyes or something, just so I can kind of see how the colors are going to interact with one another and how like I can kind of figure out what the bullseye is going to be, like what's the main feature and what how everything kind of goes off of that. It also helps me lay out if I need to add text or a logo to the poster, like a movie title or something Mm -hmm. like that, it's a really good in in illustrator. That very first um, layout is really good for figuring out where things land, because we've all been in that situation where we start doing a big illustration and then realize, Oh damn, I don't have room for the logo now that sucks. And it's, it's an important thing. I had to learn that, you know, it's uh, (laughs) so, so many times I've, I've, literally painted myself not literally painted myself into a corner but uh yeah i got myself into a bind because yeah i didn't leave enough space for this or that or the other thing so
0: so when you get into illustrator are you um like scanning in the hand sketch or are you just kind of basing it off of the thumbnail and you know creating that rough vector shape just kind of freeform?
1: um typically like if i'm doing something i'll keep the skull idea uh going here if i if i like, I can't draw a skull for, off the top of my head, so I need reference for it. But if I'm doing something in Illustrator, typically I'll have, like, I'll take a snapshot of the thumbnail with my phone, put it into Illustrator so I have it beside the canvas. But then I'll just go online and I'll just find a skull image mm. that I can use, uh, copy that, paste it into Illustrator, and then just do the rough outline. You know, I'll just do the rough outline all around it, cut out the eyes and the nose, and make sure the mouth is visible. And that way, that gives me that rough really, really, uh, simple shape. Mm-hmm. That is what the skull will eventually look like when it's all shaded in, but it allows me to move things around and manipulate it and move the mouth and, and that kind of thing. So it just kind of, it's like a previous version of what the poster is going to be. And it helps me an incredible, like a, a, a big, like really, really, really helpful mm-hmm. to get before I go into Photoshop because, and this is where I guess the, uh, the process might split a little bit because sometimes. Depending on what the style is going to be of the final thing, I might start rendering stuff in Illustrator, like putting in a lot of the shading, a lot of the highlights. Um, uh, I can't really think of a, an example of that. Like my old Blade Runner piece was like that. and my, uh, I think my, my original Drive poster was that, too, where I started loosely putting in where highlights and shadows on the characters might be. And I did all that in vector. But a lot of times, especially these days, I like to paint directly into Photoshop. So I'll find all my reference images so I can figure out highlights and shadows, paste those into, uh, into Photoshop according to the layout that I did in Illustrator. Make sure everything is lined up and then I'll paint all the stuff and using, uh, photo references in, uh, in Photoshop to kind of paint all the elements in there and and sometimes it's a combination sometimes i'll paint a lot of the stuff in photoshop and then render stuff in illustrator then bring those in and kind of dirty them up with texture and lighting and stuff and try to make everything kind of jive with uh with one another yeah and and that's pretty much my uh my process you know and it's a lot at the very end there's a lot of experimenting with texture and lighting and that kind of thing and that's all very trial and error because i have a general notion of what i want the final piece to be but I'm not exactly sure what accidents are going to happen along the way. That'll kind of change the look and tone of the, of the piece.
0: Yeah. Nice. I'm especially curious, um, your thoughts on the gear side too, because I guess just to get this out of the way, like obviously yeah. whatever tools we use are just tools, right? Cause we can, you know, go back to ink and paper if we need to, but, uh, yeah. and all of the technology really is just another tool to get that done. But, but, you know, in the design world, we're all kind of wound tight around this Apple and Mac brand. And you know, a lot of things are changing in that world right now. So between like, they're not doing displays anymore. Or we've got this, you know, touch bar that's happening. I'm just kind of curious to get your take hmm. on, on what tools are out, like what tools you use right now, like what your setup looks like. And then, uh, your thoughts on, on where Apple's going with things.
1: Yeah, cool. Uh, yeah, and in terms of gear, I've always been a little bit of a caveman. I don't, I don't tend to have a lot of crazy stuff. I never have like, a, I've never used a second monitor for anything. So I, I have this idea that it's going to spoil me, and then I'll always need a second display <laughs> to do stuff. So I'm, I've become very comfortable. I guess I always was, I always was comfortable with uh, just the single display. I mean, right now, I have a a MacBook. Uh, laptop that I'm talking to you on right now. It's a, uh, how big is this screen? I think it's a 13, like a 13 inch screen. Yeah. Um, and I got this cause it's light and I can bring it on airplanes a lot easier, but, um, it's the most powerful computer that I have. So I just use this for everything. And I've become really efficient at, you know, moving task bars around and ke- keeping tool palettes out of the way and cleaning up my, my, uh, my desktop so I can, I can work efficiently. And I use a, uh, a Wacom tablet. That's my primary weapon. Um, I haven't upgraded to a Cintiq yet. I'd really like to, but uh, I just use, like, this—oh, this—you should see this. It's laughable. I have a Beat to Hell uh, Wacom Bamboo. It's the, <laughs> the medium size, and you should see this thing. It's been all over the world with me, and uh, so it's just <laughs> it's just beat right to crap. But, um, but it works great. It's a real champion. And um, when I'm home, though, I have uh, an Intuos uh, medium tablet in my, uh, in my office. So, and it's uh, pretty much the same size. It's just a little bit, the sensitivity is a little bit better. And honestly, man, like that's, that's the run of my gear, you know? Oh, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I have a, uh, an iMac also in, uh, in my home office, um, with a slightly bigger screen. It's like a 22 inch or something, but I don't, I've never been like a, a gear person. And I think that mostly comes from when I started doing a lot of my work at home, a, I couldn't afford a second monitor and B, I needed to streamline all of my gear. If I'm going to be working remotely from, let's say, like I get into Amsterdam and I have to finish off a poster or something, or I'm, mm-hmm. I'm in Texas and I have to do this or that. So, um, yeah, like I used to haul around a, uh, a 17 inch MacBook pro that I bought in 2008 or 2009. And the thing was as heavy as a cinder block.
0: Oh man, those so, things are crazy.
1: Oh, yeah, it's insane. I mean, a beautiful big screen, but man, it just break your back running through an airport. So, uh, yeah, I I tend to streamline all my stuff and and just to keep it lightweight. And that way I can, you know, if I want to work out of a a coffee shop one day, I can do that. Um, And uh, yeah, I'm I'm really big on kind of not feeling like I need to be in a specific place to do all my work. Now, in terms of where Apple's going. I don't know. I, I'm 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 one of the idiots that stays the hell off of Twitter when there's a big Apple uh commercial, <laughs> whatever those things are called, announce infomercial announcement, whatever the hell they are, the big where well, they reveal all the new crazy garbage you're going to be releasing like
0: propaganda maybe (laughs) yeah
1: yeah and and i'm just as soon as it starts and i see everybody on twitter i'm like oh god here we go like okay if people want to line up for the new iphone that's cool i mean if you're into that that's awesome um but no i've never been that i mean i have a i have an iphone that's like two years old and (laughs) and uh uh Uh, I have a, uh, what are those things called? iPads. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot what it's called. Uh, yeah. And I have one of those that I watch movies on and stuff, but, uh, yeah, I I don't really know. I don't, I hope Apple doesn't, um, I guess, uh, my view on that is I, I hope they don't change a great, a, a big enough in a big enough way that will intrude on, uh me and my process i suppose if that makes sense you know yeah. and, and and i noticed that you know when uh when steve draw when steve jobs passed away um and what what's his head took over uh i everybody has noticed that you know things are changing you know interfaces are kind of becoming a little bit more i don't know what the word is cumbersome hmm. So every now and then, like they updated the messenger app and now it works a little bit more finicky than it used to. And you have to do another click every now and then when, you know, Steve Jobs would be like, no, reduce the number of clicks, make it as streamlined as possible. And, you know, people are changing it just to change it. And that. Right. So, yeah, it gets under my skin a little bit because like it it was really good before and you're adding things that the user needs to do in order to do a thing that should be easy. And, you know, that that's in terms of Apple and their direction, that is, um, it's, I guess it's not annoying. It's just kind of concerning because Apple got to where they were because of efficiency and stream the streamlined nature of everything that they made. And, you know, if, if you start tampering with that, like, Ooh, I don't know. I don't want to see Microsoft surface as the number one. I want to, I want to, exactly. Yeah. I want to stay, I want to stay. Where do you, what do you use? I assume you're you're Apple guy. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I've got like, when I record, uh, these podcasts, I I go over to our very fancy podcast room, which is really just kind of a (laughs) closet with a window. And, uh, we've got, you know, if I look at my, so I've got a MacBook air that I use for most things. So similar to you, like I had that 17 inch, like maybe the original 17-inch MacBook Pro, and that thing was so crazy heavy. And I didn't travel enough; it was the same way. It was like, okay, now I want the thinnest, lightest, smallest one you've got. So, but when I look at this thing, I've got you know to record one of these shows. I've got power going in. I've got USB for the mic and mixer. I've got headphones, and I've got I I do a direct line in for uh, for Ethernet. Through a USB jack, and like that's four four connections, and the new ones only have two. So like, you've got to have yeah. a uh, a docking station or something to pull off what I'm doing right here with the, you know, with three models ago. <laughs> so yeah. that's that's where my concern is is just like, well, shoot, and I got to buy a hundred and fifty dollar thing just to plug in the stuff that I've already got, and not to yeah. mention if you wanted to do an external monitor or or whatever. So when when I am sitting at my Usual desk I plug into. Um, I actually think it might be an old iMac, but we use that as a as an external so that I can have that bigger screen to look at when I'm working. But you know, oh, that's cool. Similar yeah. similar sort of setup.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's a it's strange, man. Like uh, when when I bought this this uh, Mac that, or this MacBook that I'm talking to you on. I didn't realize until I got home that it didn't have a CD drive in it. <laughs> <laughs> so because I'm just so used to it being there, like because it was just the staple method of saving files and passing stuff around for years and years that I became just accustomed to it being there. It's, a, it's the same as when I went into grade seven and nobody told me that and you don't have recess in junior high and you just all of a sudden it's not there. And you're like, what? But <laughs> Wait, <it's>, what? <laughs> It always has been there. What'd you do with my recess? Yeah, they took my recess away. Now we got to stay in school all morning. What about my? I want to eat my raisins at ten. You know, like, I don't know. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, but it was strange. Like, and now, you know, I luckily I still have my old MacBook that I can still use the CD drive in if I need it. But it's 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 interesting and, and strange and a bit unnerving sometimes to feel technology being um, kind of phased out when it's it's it was such a good it's such a big part of our our life and our process for so long right it's a strange feeling
0: speaking of which i can't remember which project it was now but i was looking at something that you did where you had like where you had designed the uh the floppy disc that goes along with the set (laughs) what was that for
1: oh uh i think that was um yeah i didn't end up doing that design that was for uh was it gunship uh for their vinyl oh yeah maybe it was Vinyl release, Yeah. Yeah. And that was, uh, I think that was Dan's, uh, the lead guy in gunship. That was his idea. And, uh, so I did the, the his logo and, um, the kind of big mountain design on the interior of the, uh, the vinyl, like actually on the case, but he, yeah, and he came up with the idea of the big floppy disc and I just, <laughs> I just love it. He hit it right out of the park. Such a good idea.
0: Well, maybe we can, um, fast forward past the, your, uh, history and process and all that and get, get into what you're doing today. So tell us a little bit about what, uh, what signal noise as a practice looks like today and kind of how you, how you spend your time, like how much of your time is actually like head down designing and illustrating or how much of it is traveling or speaking or doing administrative stuff. You know, we all love that.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Paperwork. Fancy. Um, yeah, my uh, uh, the last six years have been um, like a pretty radical a pretty radical transformation in, in me and my company and everything else. And I guess the only the only person that would see that would be myself uh, firsthand. But um, speaking speaking was a big part of it, uh, a big part of the, the change, because and it was it was for sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. And that it, when you're, when you're traveling a lot, like in one year I did, um, I think 19 talks or something in one year. And so, you know, I know that's not on like, you know, Aaron Draplin is on the go all the time, but uh, for me, that was a, a big deal. And so when you come home and you're home for a week and then you leave again and you're home again for five days, then you leave again, your life gets broken up into these little short term compartments where I need to do everything I need to do when I'm home and then make sure everything is set up so I can work remotely when I go. So it taught me to really keep my files organized and to keep everything backed up properly and to keep in touch with clients if I have client jobs on the go because that becomes the biggest challenge when you know I'm on an airplane for seven hours and somebody needed a file or whatever. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that changed. Traveling helped change a lot of uh, what I do, and it was through a lot of... Um, headaches that uh, that it ended up coming about but just within the last two years all the while i should mention this too when i when i wasn't working on client work i really tried to push my um my style and my brand in the in the way of uh pop culture you know like the mondos and you know uh just the alternative art movie poster area of design i really mm-hmm. wanted to really make that one at the forefront of my work and ultimately like after spending a year or year and a half trying to do it i uh, i wasn't getting anywhere and you know that pop culture sphere of doing alternative art stuff for everything is just such uh, a slush heap these days where everybody's doing it. Like remember the days when we had one poster for ghostbusters and now we have 6,000, you know, (laughs) it's, it's sort of like everybody is doing, um, pop culture and, um, that I got a little bit dismayed with it and said like, well, it feels like a rat race now because it's just, it's, it's a race to find another unique way of presenting escape from New York, you know, and it just Mm -hmm. became really tiring. So, what what then? That was actually a change for the better because that let me or forced me to shift my focus to um, original content, basically, and that's where I find myself and my brand today. Is um, I'm really pushing to to develop original content that springboards off of the styles of you know the 1980s, like we were talking about earlier. So um, when I was trying to do that over the course of the last three years or something. It, and this is a strange trajectory to try to, to try to talk about because it was sort of unintentional. But the stuff and work that I was doing almost hit the uh, the synth wave and outrun music scene head on mm-hmm. where the, the stuff that. These people were creating this music that's based on, you know, John Carpenter music scores from, uh, you know, The Thing and Assault on Precinct 13 and stuff. They needed cover art and logo work, which incidentally was exactly the kind of stuff that I was doing. So you have the neon grids and chrome text and it fit perfectly with this music scene. And I didn't see that coming. I mean, I loved um, I loved that scene once I discovered it, but I wasn't trying to gear myself to. Kind of run side by side with this music scene, but once I discovered that was happening, uh, it was it was a perfect marriage of sort of music that the music that I love and the visuals I want to create. So that uh, the synthwave and outrun scene has been sort of informing the kind of work that I do for the last two years. So you see wireframe palm trees and uh, and big, you know. <laughs> hot pink sunsets and, and that sort of thing. And that's all taken from like the, uh, the musical styles of the synthwave scene. And that and again, it allowed me to create my own content. So instead of supporting, you know, star Wars or whatever, and not getting paid for it, I'm actually supporting my own brand. So I'm, I'm creating my own content. So it adds to the signal noise franchise, it's not a franchise, but it adds to the signal noise brand and not, not a big movie brand. So that's sort of, You know a a loose description of how the last six years went and where i find myself now opened up my threadless store and i'm selling uh t-shirts that have this like sort of 80s uh synthwave vibe to them um and and wall art and that kind of thing and i'm still like really deep into that into that scene and trying to produce art and and stuff that that hits on those styles uh so but in terms of getting back to your question in terms of like time spent I really try to keep my days, uh, nine to five, uh, because I think it's really easy. And especially like when, you know, in my early thirties, I would stay up until two in the morning working on stuff and I had a blast doing it. Like, don't get me wrong, but I really feel like uh, if you're going to stay up until 2 a.m., uh, it's going to something is going to suffer because of that. So I'll be like, you know, dopey and half asleep at work the next morning, or I'll mm-hmm. sleep in and miss my alarm, or something like that. And I, I, I just feel like having a nine to five structure and trying to adhere to that as much as we can. It, um, it helps us. You know, rediscover evenings. You know, hanging out with friends, or <laughs> you know, that kind of that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, and I try to keep it to that. And if I'm not working on during those hours, if I'm not working on uh, client work, I'm typically working on my own stuff. So, and and both kind of inform the other. So, if I'm working on some personal signal noise work, and I put that up on Twitter and on Instagram with a little bit of luck, a little while later, I'll get a call from a client who would like me to do that sort of work for them. So it's sort of, um, it's the best area to, to be at. And of course, I still do work that doesn't really fall within that exact realm, which I'm fine with. I like to change it up, but, um, but it's really good to know that, um, if I put something out and, it, and it's up to par, um, that's uh, that a, a client might pay me to develop that for them and I'd have a lot of fun doing it. So.
0: that answer your question, man. (laughs) Yeah. So do you feel like your, um, your best clients then are the ones that kind of come in through the signal noise door of, Hey, I love what you did over here. And I want, I want that kind of idea for my brand or for my campaign or whatever.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the reason I say yes is because typically, the people that want uh, that sort of like uh, I want to make art that looks fun, right? So it's a lot of wild colors and whatever else. And if if somebody has seen that work and wants me to do that for them, odds are we're going to get along, you know, because we'll be laughing about like uh, you know let's let's put an Uzi in it or something, and like it's it's that <laughs> sort of we we know we have common ground in uh, in style, and we want something that looks fun or exciting, and uh, and that adds um that adds a little bit of electricity to the the client and designer uh process of going back and forth um and i mean a great example of that is uh, is my buddy well he was a client and then he turns out he's one of my one of my best pals uh dean evans that works at ubisoft in montreal and he got me to do the first um uh far cry 3 blood dragon stuff when that video game came out so getting me to do the logo for it and the, the box art he is exactly on the same wavelength as me, like he grew up in our generation, right? So he's, you know, he's our age and he loves all the crazy like action movies from the eighties and wrestling and, and whatever else. And we and him got, we, we got along like I was on fire, man. Like it was, it was great. So, uh, yeah. And those are, and those are the best clients, uh, in my experience anyway, are the ones that, um, And I guess I should say like no client that I work with or very few just wants me to replicate what I did before. And that's really important, too, because I don't because that's when it gets kind of boring. Right. I'd like to sort of um, do a new spin on something that I did before. Uh, And that keeps it interesting and it keeps me sort of on my toes and and exploring and that kind of thing.
0: Well, I was I was thinking back to when you were presenting at Creative South and you would kind of show like and then I got into doing this idea and then you kind of go down this rabbit trail and like yeah. with the Starcade series in particular. So I'm curious if you have any, any of these new rabbit trails in the works or if there's other things that you're, you're thinking about or kind of side projects.
1: Oh man. Yeah. I have a big side project that again, I'm not allowed to talk about, uh, which is, <laughs> uh, which is a big thing. I'm got, it, it'll be, it'll be unveiled next year, like maybe mid next year uh, sometime, but it, it um, it does, It did springboard off of something I've done before and it uh, it kind of went down, like you said, one of these rabbit holes that I, that was very unexpected. And, um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be really, really fun to get this out there. I've been working on it since July, July this year. So like four months or something like that. And, uh, yeah, so that would be fun, but I'm still on that rabbit hole of, uh, of developing stuff. Actually, no, I got a better one. The, like I said earlier, like a lot of the, I do a lot of like the synth wave and outrun in 1980s, you know, hot pink stuff. And mm-hmm. what I'm, what I'm doing now is, and I explored this a little bit last year, but it's still kind of like in my head and I, I, I screw around with it every now and then I'm, I'm trying to develop a, something that's not like a, a piece of art that aren't just a scene. You know, because I do a lot of these things that are like, you know, the, the, the girl looking out the window or mm-hmm. the, the black Lamborghini, um, with the big sun behind it. And they seem to be like scenes, but I want to get more into, um, I don't even know how to explain it, developing stuff that's more, I don't know if symbolic is the word, but just more, um, mishmash of style and, uh, and content to make, yeah, I'm doing a terrible job of explaining this, but it's, uh. oh god yeah i lost it
0: (laughs) (laughs) so it's it's not a scene and it's not just a thing but what like
1: yeah well i i messed around with it um last year a little bit and it was called the the neochrome series and it was Mm -hmm. these like bands of chrome, like with, of course, rainbow gradients across it come to kind of cutting through the the scene. And I had like uh, some grids in the background. So it was more like art than it was a scene. There was no real purpose for it. And I just thought these things printed off huge in a wall would look really, really cool in like a, I don't know, hair salon in the 80s or something. I don't know. But um, (laughs) it was in this. uh, And I really got the idea uh, based on this this graffiti artist or or street artist named uh, Philippe Pantone, He's, uh, I think he's French, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Wait, and, his uh, name is Pantone.
1: Yeah, it might be his. <laughs> sounds his, made his, up. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. And it might be his moniker. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that he, his graph name or whatever. But uh, his work, if you look him up on Instagram, he he does stuff that it it plays around in like the late '80s, early '90s, like early computer graphics stuff. But he does it with spray paint, which is mm. crazy crazy talented guy, but he has these big bands of Chrome that go through his stuff. And I really like the idea, not specifically that. I mean, I was inspired when I first did it by him, but it's, it's more, I'm exploring more of style and not content, I suppose. Like what, what can I push illustrator and Photoshop to do? That's not just a, you know, a girl standing at the window or a Lamborghini or something very literal, So I guess I want it like uh, I want it to be just more style than than substance, which is an awful thing to say, I think. But uh, (laughs) yeah. So in other words, I have no idea, Josh.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe let's come back to this sort of in the synth wave. I can't even speak today. Um, (laughs) I was checking out your um, your T-shirt shop. So tell me a little bit about how that threadless shop thing happened. And uh, I think I'm going to have to get myself one of those stranger things t-shirts that looks
1: pretty sweet (laughs) right on yeah thanks man um yeah yeah the uh the threadless shop uh threadless got a hold of me um late last year i think and um they were just setting up their their artist shops and they asked me if i wanted to be an early adopter of it just to see what uh what it could do or how i might be able to use it with my process and things and it uh in the past i've tried to developed my own line of t-shirts, you know, along the lines of, you know, Johnny cupcakes or whatever else. And Mm -hmm. so I started, I designed some shirts that, uh, that were playing on my logo and uh, had some eighties motifs in them sort of, and I got them printed myself, screen printed, and it cost a hell of a lot of money. And I had boxes and boxes of t-shirts in my apartment and, you know, I sold them online and they did, I mean, the first day I had a spike in sales and there was nothing. So it was this sort of, um, I was in a place then that I didn't want to do that ever again. Have a bunch of excess stock that I didn't know if I was ever going to be able to shift. But mm-hmm. I also wanted to develop um, more products for Signal Noise, and I also needed a method of making, say, t-shirts that could be millions of colors and not paying for four-color screen printing because I like I like my wild colors. So. When Threadless got a hold of me and they said they they're doing like high quality digital printing, and it's going to be however many colors I want, and they'll they'll print it and they'll ship it, so I didn't have to do any of that and I could focus on what I really love focusing on, which is the actual creation of the designs of these things. So when they got a hold of me, I, I jumped at it and uh, and set it all up. I really got it mobilized this year uh, about May, and um, and it's perfect. It's a perfect outlet for for me getting my art into people's hands in a timely manner because threadless are professionals when it comes to this mm-hmm, stuff. Right. And, um, yeah. And they, and they recently added, you could upload, uh, you know, they call it wall art, you know? So it's like, I think it's G clay prints, high res G clay prints, and they can print them bigger than I ever had access to. And they handle the rolling and the shipping and, and the printing and everything. So it's a, it's a perfect, perfect outlet for me in supporting, uh, the signal noise brand. I mean, that's what, that's what I wanted to do two years ago. Like I said, I wanted to focus more on my own content and, and partnering with threadless has been like, they're like a godsend. Like it's a, it's just a perfect, um, perfect combination of, uh, they handle all the shipping, uh, they handle all the processing and all the legwork that comes along with r- running a shop. And I concentrate on the, on the art and design, you know, it's awesome.
0: Yeah. It's pretty awesome. let you scratch that itch of, you know, for every designer out there, which is probably like 99% of them who always wanted to do their own t-shirt line, like allows yeah. you to kind of do that without any of the headaches besides just making the, making the design.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you don't need to, to have like three grand up front to do like uh a bunch of different print runs and stuff. So yeah, it's it's perfect. I mean, those guys are great. Yeah, big shout out to Threadless, man.
0: Yeah, maybe it's worth saying Threadless is not a sponsor of this show. However, if they want <laughs> to be, we could probably work something out. Hey, yeah,
1: there we go. Now we're talking. <laughs> yeah, give me another sick shout out. <laughs> hey,
0: speaking of podcasts, um, until we reconnected on Twitter, I didn't realize you had recorded some podcasts. So yeah, tell us a little bit about how that happened and uh, what you think the future holds for your podcast (laughs)
1: uh yeah the podcast man so it was last year that i recorded those there's only there's only four of them so far and i was and i described this in the first did you listen to the first episode
0: i think i listened to three and four
1: three and four okay uh in the first one well i can sum it up i wasn't in a very good place in uh life really when i when i did that and um and uh, I mean, the short the short version of it is I was uh, I was living in the the house that was going to be sold. And uh, it was me and my girlfriend. We had split up. So she had already moved out. And so I was there on my own in pretty much an empty house. And um, I wanted to do something that, um, you know, like kind of a. Uh, a a, a secondary version of what I present on stage. So if I, if I go to a, uh, a, a conference, if I'm on stage, I talk about all the fun projects I did and there's lots of dumb jokes and rock and roll and that kind of stuff. And I wanted, <laughs> I wanted the podcast to be the other side of design where, you know, everybody has life stuff that just happens, you know, and, and some of it isn't that, that good and it affects what we do for a living. You know, um, for me personally, I need to be in a good headspace in order to do the kind of work that I want to do because it's, I want it to look enthusiastic and fun and that sort of thing. So when you're in a bad place, you know, I, I found it very difficult to be able to make work. So I thought a podcast might be a good method of kind of, um, getting some of that stuff off my chest uh, getting the, getting that sort of story out because, you know, a lot of other people are affected by things that happen in life that, that kind of take them away from design and art and, and that kind of thing. And, uh, so I might be able to get to, uh, you know, connect with other people that have gone through similar things. Uh, yeah. And just, in just a way of kind of having another version of the talk that was like kind of the, uh, the life the life version, the other side of of what we go through when we're when we're artists and designers. So I recorded the first one and it was uh, it was a, a rough go, man. <laughs> it was uh, like I, I I broke down on a couple of occasions and uh, when I'm trying to tell the story, and I had a pretty rough year last year. Which was kind of like not the best time to start a podcast, I suppose, in <laughs> hindsight. But, uh, but I mean, it did, it did really help in getting the, uh, uh, getting some stuff off my chest. And I sort of, I didn't continue that exact theme into, um, into the second and the third and the fourth, but I, I wanted it to be a little bit more, um, real, I suppose. Um, and it was at a point in time, you know, when, you, when you go to a lot of these conferences, you see a lot of people that are on stage and it's like it's their highlight reel right and it's oh, all yeah. the all the dope stuff that they've done and and whatever else and and you know that like it's like life isn't easy all the time like work isn't easy all the time. And, um, the longer and the more, the more conferences that I went to and the longer I I listened to people speak, uh, that message sort of became more and more prevalent. And I thought it would, it would send to younger designers in particular. I thought it might send a bad message in that, you know, you get to a certain point and then everything is just chocolate covered donuts for forever, you know? And it's <laughs> it's not like that at all, you know? You still have to work hard, it's still gonna be frustrating, there's gonna be things that pop up that get in the way. And I feel like that's a message that's been sort of getting lost with uh, with a lot of these design conferences that are popping up. And you know, um, the, the, the talks that I got the most out of were the talks that were deeply personal. You know, um, it's not the, here's all the stuff I've done. It's the, here's the backdrop to what happened while I was trying to get this done. You know, cause that's real. And, uh, and you don't normally hear that, especially like when the age of social media, when you go to somebody's Facebook, it's just their their greatest hits, you know, and that's it. Mm-hmm. So I wanted kind of the, the podcast to be the opposite side of it. I wanted to talk about things that are real and, uh, and you know, tell, tell the stories about the stories that people may already know and, uh, and see where that goes, you know? And, um, I mean the problem of it, like to answer your question about the future of it, um, <laughs> that's a tough one. Cause I only did four and I'm a year late on number five, but it's, it's <laughs> because, well, I mean the easy answer is uh time and I just didn't have enough of it, but also like those damn things took a lot out of me. Like it, it was really exhausting when,
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: when, uh, you know, sitting by myself like we were talking before you hit record there like sitting by myself in a room uh, in my bedroom by myself because it's the only room that doesn't echo and uh and i'm talking to myself for two hours it was uh it was it was hard for me personally to keep my my enthusiasm up and uh it was like when i hit the stop button at the end of like boom then and go and take a nap
0: so <laughs> <laughs> sure it takes but, it out of you
1: it does. Yeah. Yeah. I found them really uh, really, like hats off to you guys who do podcasts like uh, frequently, you know, because, man, I found it really difficult. Um, But yeah, I mean, uh, but that's not to say that uh that I'm not going to do any more. I mean, I'm late on it, but I think it's um, it also has to be uh, I need to be to a point where I have something to say as well. And that was that was a really big challenge, too, because, like I said, like going to design conferences and getting on stage and doing so many of these a year it uh you i sort of felt like i was running out of topics that were interesting you know or if i'm not enthusiastic about my topic i can't expect my audience to be enthusiastic either so i needed to wait until i had sort of something to say in order to to hit the record button and that and that filters down to like where i am right now too because i'm not i took a break from doing uh speaking for the second half of this year the last talk i did was in uh bristol Hustle mania with my buddy Gavin strange and that was that was in early June and I I kind of uh, I took the rest of the year off like I needed a break um, I was tired and uh, you know when you're when you're traveling around and you're hitting all these different time zones It messes with your head, too. It's uh oh, yeah. it's really weird for example like here's the kind of dumb crap that I scheduled for myself like I, I flew from Nova Scotia the east coast of Canada to Tokyo for FITC Tokyo. I was there for, I think, four days. Then I flew back to Nova Scotia and I was in Nova Scotia for a day and a half. And then I flew to Germany. (laughs) (laughs) So like, and by the time I got to Germany, I was a crazy person. Like there's no, my body is just like, what are you doing? I don't even know when I'm supposed to be right now. So (laughs) And and that and that's pretty much the the time that I decided like I need a break from this, you know. Like I had other stuff scheduled after that, but uh that that's when I really decided that yeah, I need to I need to calm down, you know, and and start uh I don't know, taking care of myself a little bit and resting and you know, I was missing friends and family at home and I felt like I was missing the, you know, the little changes in your town when you leave and you come back and you're like, geez, I didn't realize that building was there and that sort of thing. <laughs> I, <I've, laughs> I felt like I was missing stuff, you know, like so it's uh, yeah. And anyway, that spring that springboards back to the podcast in that uh I'm at, I'm at a point with it right now. I need to I need to have something to say in order to hit the record button and uh, it will happen. I'm just really not sure when.
0: Maybe to, to flip your perspective a little bit, I think if you hit the record button, you're going to have plenty of things to say, but that's just that's just me guessing. Oh, yeah.
1: Based on these long ass
0: answers, I don't think you're going to have any problem. I think you're a natural. I appreciate that support, man. Well, hey, to shift yours a little bit, tell us about maybe your answer is I don't I don't know. But uh, I'm curious if there's anything that you feel like is is maybe a common misperception about you or about signal noise or your work? Like, what do you feel like people get wrong sometimes?
1: Um, I think, okay. Based yeah. Based on some of the emails that I get from like uh, you know, younger designers or students or whatever. And I, th- I think, I don't think it's a misconception about me specifically. I think it's a misconception about designers who, who might be a little bit uh, well-known in the industry. Uh, mm-hmm. I think a misconception across the board is that people take for granted that a lot of the designers that they know that they've seen their work a lot and they work with big clients that they forget that they put in the years and years and years of, of work, yeah. uh, you know, just slogging along doing crap jobs for a crap clients, you know, and everybody has that sort of, uh, that period of, of, You need to build who you are. You need to find your voice. You need to, you need to work a lot and develop a bunch of garbage. You need to do a lot of garbage before you can get to the good stuff. And I think that's, it's a misconception because when, when I get emails from, um, from, you know, younger kids wanting to get into the industry or are, are in the industry and they, they ask, you know, well, how did you do it? You know, how did you, how did you get your work known? How did you get exposure And it's there's no simple answer for that because there's no recipe that works for everybody, you know, and, you know, I could write back and say, well, I started drawing for when I was four and now I'm here. You know, it's Mm -hmm, it's sort of and I think it's a misconception that, um, you know, if I post my stuff at a certain time of day on Behance, then I'll get well known. And it's.
0: it's just that simple just hit the button yeah
1: yeah and it's it just so doesn't work that way and i think you know that and that's not a misconception about myself i don't think it's a misconception just across the board where you know uh people don't come out of the gates and they're you know saul bass you know saul bass did a load of stuff before anybody know knew who he was and before he became well known for doing what he does and and that's and that's a hard thing to describe to People that are, you know, that are just getting into the industry and that like, like for me personally, I I mean, I started my career when I was 21 and signal noise never got any traction until I was about 30 or 31, you know. So that's that's a long ass time. That's like nine, like almost a decade of just doing my own thing, having a having a lot of fun doing it, mind you. But, you know, it's it's hard to explain to people that, you know you're not going to go to the gym once and get ripped. You have to go like you have to go all the time frequently and you get a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And it's the same with art, you know, with every little thing that we make, we get a tiny bit better or we understand how that damn layer effect works now or, you know, (laughs) whatever it is. And, and it's, that's, that's the thing that's most difficult to, to try to explain that, you know, and without being, dismissive or anything. Just say like, yeah, it's going to be really hard. You know, it's going to be, you have to do a ton of work. That's going to get zero recognition. You got to do it for years. You can't say that because it will just like, you know, it will make people not want to do it, you know, just discourage them from doing anything. So you have to be, um, sort of a, you have to cheer them on and say like, just have fun doing it because it's a lot of fun. And, and, you know, with a little bit of luck, you can get your stuff in front of the right people who will shout about you in their magazine or on their blog or on their Twitter or their Instagram or whatever. And then you can get a little bit of uh, a little bit of exposure from it, you know, and it's just doing that over and over again incrementally and hoping it all works out with a little bit of luck. So yeah, to answer your question, I think that's to me anyway, that's in, in terms of my experience with people, that's the biggest misconception. People forget about, you know, the, the 10,000 hours before anything worked.
0: Well, maybe speaking of which, so, um, you mentioned Saul Bass, and maybe you'll have a few different ones than than maybe our our typical interview. But I'm curious if you have any design heroes or guys that you looked up to as you were kind of coming up in the biz.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. Um, uh, Dave McKeon is one of my favorite digital artists in the world. Now he was he was he got really well known for doing the covers of uh, Neil Gaiman's The uh, Sandman series back in the 80s and 90s, and uh, a buddy of mine back home, Dave Johnson, uh, lent me the dust covers trade paperback, which was a uh, an anthology of all the covers that Dave McKeon did for the Sandman series. Mm. And uh, it was a, a kind of art that I, I didn't understand. I had no idea. I, I assumed it was computers, but it was mixed media. It was it's sculpture. It was everything kind of brought together. And uh, he's he's one of the main reasons I wanted and was excited to get into to digital illustration was Dave McKeon and um, and all through my career you know I'll always go back and revisit his work um, he was a huge inspiration in my in my early career like uh, and what I would do is you know my favorite uh, children's book is the day I, I swap my dad for two goldfish and it's by uh, Neil Gaiman and Dave McKeon and I would try to reverse engineer the uh the pages because dave mckeon's work is so multi-layered that i would like analyze it and and try to dissect all the different textures Mm -hmm. and then try to find just stock stock imagery of these different textures and then try to layer it in photoshop the way that he did it and then combine it with his hand-drawn stuff so i spent years trying to reverse engineer his work and learning a pile along the way this would have been like the 90s Out of uh, yeah, and from Dave McKeon, like uh, I go, I go through different transitions of style uh, throughout the years. So I got really into Obey Giant, uh, Shepard Fairey's work in the early 2000s, his propaganda Mm -hmm. style, and uh, and that's when I really pushed myself to to use Illustrator for illustration. Go figure! um, Instead of using (laughs) it uh, for uh, for logo work and typography and stuff, so I actually started drawing within Illustrator to see if I could do do stuff that was comparable to you know Shepard Fairey. Uh, And digital artists, like I said earlier, uh, uh, Joshua Davis and things. But in the last, you know, seven, eight years, um, it's my favorite artists have mostly been these uh, movie poster gods from uh, the 70s and the 80s. So uh, Bob Peake, Drew Struzan, of course, Roger Dean. I love his work, his kind of science fiction paintings for like, yes, album covers and that sort of thing. Um, A lot of those guys, because they did their stuff without the aid of computers, you know? So I love how they they did all of that by hand, yet they can make it look like it was a digital effect, mm-hmm. which is, just takes so much more talent than any of us can do, right? <laughs> right. But yeah, and those those guys are, uh, I mean, those guys are just the monsters of the movie poster world. And it's so cool to see, you know, what comes along with the alternative art movie poster scene is these, these uh these heroes uh coming to light again. So people talking about, you know, Bob Peake's uh original uh Superman the movie poster or his Star Trek the motion picture poster with the big rainbow down the middle and Drew Struzan's big trouble little China and the thing and and these just like huge posters from back in the day that are brilliantly done and, and you know and what as luck would have it, like some of these guys are still alive so they're like living legends of this time that doesn't exist anymore because we don't do hand hand hand-painted posters anymore so so those guys are huge inspirations on me like uh yeah and have been for years and years
0: maybe tell us about one of your proudest moments as a designer
1: Oh, man, this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yep. you're just like that done mic drop. Um, <laughs> well, guys,
0: that's all we have for today. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, it's. uh, Oh, that's a tough one, too, there's so many there could be so many different facets of it. I mean, um,
0: maybe what's the first one that comes to mind?
1: Yeah, the first one that comes to mind was being on stage at uh, the off conference in Barcelona. Uh, and it would have been, I think two, two or three years ago. And it was on, I think the second day and I was the second last speaker. So you know how they always put like the, uh, like the biggest speakers at the very end of each day just to put a nice cap on the day. Mm -hmm. And I was second last and my buddy G monk, uh, Bradley was following me on stage. So I went up and did my thing and then he went up and did his thing. And we were we're we're buddies at this point. And uh, because we've spoken at a lot of the same conferences together and uh, and we just like and we have very similar sort of presenting styles where we Mm -hmm. we show a lot of work all at once. It's very machine gunned, but we we put a lot of jokes in there and we're 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 a bit we're kind of goofballs, I guess would be the description on stage. But uh, uh, and the, the point is, we want to amp up the audience. We want to keep uh, the electricity really high with the audience. And, I, and my presenting style is very like uh, if I can make the audience laugh and get into it and cheer and yell that that helps me as well on stage. So and my proudest moment was just that that presentation in particular just felt like it, it felt like a bookend, uh, as weird as that sounds. It feels like all of the stuff that I did six years prior to that was leading to that, that moment where everything came together. And I was, I told my little story to 3000 people in the audience and, you know, and then, and then uh, G Monk went up and did his thing. And so it was just being a part of that two hours was, uh, was amazing. Like it was, it was just a great feeling and it felt like, you know, all of the all of the the late nights and all of the uh, you know bad clients and all of the whatever uh, all the ups and downs it was all worth it when uh, to get that to get there and uh, and it was wonderful and everybody was really and everybody was really great in in Barcelona I mean a lot like you know Hector and everybody that runs that Natalie like they're all wonderful people that run it um, and I guess another like I'll do a little bit of a, a sidestep on that. Another uh, one of the other proud moments, it was a speaking moment and it was the first time my mom and dad saw me speak. And mm-hmm. I believe that was in uh, FITC Toronto uh, in 2000. 2000- 12 or 2011 i can't remember when and you know my mom and dad came to see me speak and i've been telling them about the speaking stuff i've been doing a lot of the new art and stuff and my parents have been have always been incredibly supportive of everything that i've done and they saw me of course when i was a little guy drawing and uh and then just it erupting into this but when they came to see me speak they saw drawings on screen that i did when i was a kid (laughs) and i'm uh, Yeah, and and I'm sure that they were sitting there going, I can't believe we're sitting in front of a stage and he's up there showing that picture of Donkey Kong he drew when he was in grade eight. Like, <laughs> <laughs> So I'm sure that was like a strange juxtaposition. Like, you know, the thing I did, like I uh, drew this thing, like while watching a movie down in the rec room. And then all of a sudden it's on a stage in front of, you know, 500 people. And, uh, you know, so that was, that was proud because I think, uh, I mean, I'm not going to put words in my parents' mouth, but I think uh, in terms of the kind of work I want to do and the kind of pursuits that's when it made sense to them, uh, ultimately, was when they saw the whole scope of it and heard the whole story and, and saw everybody there. And uh, so that, that was really cool. I, lo- I love having my parents in the audience because uh, if anybody heckles me, my mom will mess them up.
0: <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any, um, any dream projects that you'd like to do in the future? Something you haven't checked off your list yet?
1: Yeah, that's a difficult one. I used to say work for NASA, you know, just to do... <laughs> to do something for them. But, uh, it, like the, the further I get into my career, the more I go, what the hell would I do with NASA? Like what? <laughs> like, I don't know. It's like, God, oh, you guys like Brian Gosling. I wouldn't know what to do for him. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I don't know. Like, um, I think, I think a dream job. And I was, I was thinking about this recently just with, uh, you know, the, the kind of illustration that I do and stuff. I'd like to design. <laughs> this is so stupid. I'd really like to design, a, uh, like, you know, when you bought a GI Joe figure when you were a kid and it was on the blister pack. Oh, so yeah. the, 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 yeah, design the cardboard back for an action figure. <laughs> like, I don't know what that would be. Probably he man with a Chrome logo and oh, yeah. exploding red things coming up from the side. And I'd have to think about, well, if the action figure is going to be here in the blister pack, I need to design everything to go around that. And that's, that's like the really dumb, answer. I just really love to do that do
0: that <laughs> so i kind of forgot about this until you said that but a friend of mine from college is married to a woman whose dad worked for uh kenner when she was little and he did like all the star wars packaging so maybe what? we could get him on the show sometime maybe we get get you to interview him
1: <laughs> oh man i'd be all about that yeah that is I, awesome.
0: it's been a while it's been a couple of years since we've chatted so i need to to check in and see if we could uh get her Get his father-in-law on the show.
1: Oh man, I wonder if he would have any of his old stuff. Probably not. It was probably property, property of Kenner. That would be great.
0: No, I think he has everything. At least that was that was the story a couple of years ago. They, I think they're in Cincinnati. Maybe that's where Kenner oh. was based.
1: But oh man, how great would it be to hear that process, right? Oh, yeah. they, no kidding. Yeah, they wouldn't. They wouldn't have laid it out on a computer, so they would have had to do what paste up and then get it photographed or
0: something. Yeah, I I don't even know.
1: Wow. Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah. You should get on that,
0: man. <laughs> yeah. Making a note to myself, call my friend and says, hey. <laughs>
1: James will flip out. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, maybe before we let you go here, I don't know if you've got like a, like a favorite piece of advice that you give out to young designers or maybe, maybe what's the best piece of advice you feel like you've ever received?
1: Oh yeah. It's a uh, be relentless. Just keep making stuff all the time, you know. And uh, when you're in your early career, and you can stay up until two in the morning, you know, stay up until two in the morning. Like make stuff, make a lot of stuff. Um, like we were talking about earlier, nobody releases one thing and and it and it hits it big, you know. Um, the the more that you do, the the better you get. And it's about with this art and design, especially within the the online sphere, you know, of of designers and artists and stuff, to be known. You have to do it for a long time you have to keep trying and trying and trying and uh and that's it like just be relentless and uh you have to love this stuff you know and i think that a lot of us being artists it's really easy to uh to love what we do but you have to be in it for the love of the craft uh, and that has to be number one as well i guess this is a little bit of a side note and this is something that uh i can't remember who told it told this to me ages ago but when you, when you put yourself ahead of your art, that's when things get really gross, you know? So if you're, if you're Mm -hmm. creating art just to become a famous artist, you know, you can't do that. Your work needs to be number one. The work is always, always, always number one. You can put yourself second, third, whatever, but, uh, we got to kind of cherish what we do. And that's where this love of it comes from and just keep it up, you know, be relentless.
0: Awesome. Well, um, I maybe we could get a a part two on the books for sometime next year, because I'm, I think we could probably just keep going on this forever. (laughs) Yeah, for sure, man. Anytime. Maybe before I let you go, tell our, our listeners where they can track you down online and where to find your stuff. And you know, where's a good place to connect with signal noise
1: yeah connecting with signal noise. Uh, you guys can follow me on uh, on Twitter uh, username signal noise and on Instagram same thing signal noise. Uh, my website is signalnoise.com and that's uh, all of my redesigned it last year or earlier this year actually using Adobe portfolio and I love it big shout out to Adobe doby 's mm-hmm. a small graphic software out of California for all you guys that don 't know them um, <laughs> and yeah and, yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah and, I, and through signal noise on my on my site, you can check out the uh, the two stores I have my, my the signal noise stores where I sell my font, neon noir and in uh, some of my personal prints that I sign and ship out or the threadless shop is where I saw all my t-shirts and all my posters and that kind of thing so if uh, if you dig synthwave and hot pink uh sunsets and that's the that's that's the go-to
0: joint uh yeah 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 that's about that's about it that's where you can find me <laughs> sweet well we will link to uh all of that stuff in the show notes and uh james it was great hanging out with you today so thanks for Being on the show, and thank you for being obsessed with design. Okay, guys, that's episode number 45 in the books. For all of today's show notes, please head on over to obsessedshow.com for links to all of those designers that James mentioned on the show. Thanks again for helping us grow the show this year, and we would love it if you would head over to iTunes to give us a rating or review and help others find the show who else do you think we should interview tweet to me at obsessed show and let me know who you think we should interview next obsessed with design is a product of the design obsessed team at miles herndon a branding agency located in downtown indianapolis hit us up online we are at milesherndon.com our intro music is Matchbox Girl by Kazzy Joe, and our show is always edited by Jen Eds at the Brassy Broadcast Company. Visit brassybroad.com for more information. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.